Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. For he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over the many. And he will parcel out land for a price. At the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. We have studied through the book of Daniel, and this last half there has been many difficult passages. 7 through 12 is not easy to fully understand. Among very, very good men, there are many different diverging views. Chapter 11 has been probably one of the most difficult and taxing chapters of the whole of the book of Daniel. And I think now, in these verses, we come to the absolute most taxing and difficult verses. I'm going to give you the best understanding that I have 
the best explanation that I understand and know to this point in my Christian life. Will it be a perfect understanding? No, I don't think so. Some of you may walk out of the room and even disagree with something I say today. And you know what? I'm okay. I just hope you'll be okay with me. These are not things that I think are worth uh, Christians having extreme division over unless some other severe erroneous teachings come out of it. But the actual division and connection and understanding of these verses from 36 to 45, there can be some diverging views that we can consider. So as we go through this, I ask for your patience. I ask for your thoughtfulness. I pray the Lord will give you a mind that will be in gear because these are not the easiest of things to think through. And as we look at them, we have to recognize as we turn to verse 36, there is some seeming change in context. But I don't think we need to divorce this from how we've looked at other passages. In previous sections, we have dealt with Antiochus, and now it says in verse 36, the king will do as he pleases. There seems to be some slight divergent change in language here moving us to something else, and I think it does move us that way. And that's what I hope to get you to see today, that movement and what that movement is and who it is and the understanding of it in twofold context. One is in the vision of Daniel, what is near future to him, upcoming in 400 or so to 500, 600 years. And what is far future, I hope to get you to see there's a context for that as well. It's a both and, not an either or. There are many views that have been offered over the last two millennia about these passages in particular. And I want to give you just five thoughts on some of these views just quickly so you realize I understand the background and I understand that there's a context to this, but I also want you to have a little bit of that context for yourself. Number one, verse 36, according to some continues revelation regarding Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Some take verse 36 to 45 and say, this is basically a recapitulation of what you just read about Antiochus IV, and they're just kind of, Daniel's in the vision, what he's seeing is, is just kind of hammering down on who Antiochus is and how bad he is. And that view is held by multiple people down through history, if you want to know more about that, you can ask me later. Number two, verse 36, according to some, considers revelation regarding the unfolding of the future Roman Empire. One of the main proponents of this view is John Calvin. And you'll see that I, I, I hold a portion of his view as we walk through it. Some people, number three, view verse 36 they say it connects revelation regarding Daniel 7 and a future apostate Christian leader. 
Now, this idea is built from multiple premillennial dispensationalists. And if you've been around dispensationalism for a long time in any way, you'll know a little bit about that view. I'm not here to discuss that in particular this morning, so I'm not going to go into it. But you, you see now there's three views already on 36 through 45. A fourth view. Verse 36 contains revelation regarding John of Giscala, a Jewish king. Have you ever heard of John of Giscala? Raise your hand. A few. Okay? Um, now, you, you need to know this is an extreme minority position. Uh, I could only find a, a couple historic uh, people who hold that this, these passages are dealing with John of Giscala. Um, and there's a modern pastor who holds this view. And he does a pretty good job of explaining his view and why. Uh, he thinks it's the case. Nothing against this pastor. I appreciate him. I would disagree with the view simply because there's not enough historical information to go along with this view. One of the main proponents of the view is Josephus, and I'm not against Josephus. He's become very important to me in reading about history and, and Jewish history in particular. But oftentimes with Josephus, you get a perspective, which is one. And I think as a historian, it's not the best thing to take just one historical perspective and build a whole view off of mainly the works of Josephus. Um, and because this, this Jewish king is so obscure, I just don't think that's what's being done here. And I, I think I can prove that textually, and I hope that you'll see that. Now, if you know who that, that pastor is I'm talking about, fine. I'm not trying to be denigrating to him. I just would disagree with my brother, even though he and I have a lot in common, and I appreciate him. Number five, some, verse 36, conveys relation regarding the far future Antichrist. They skip a historical figure and move particularly all the way to the far future historical or far future uh, Antichrist. Some look at these verses and say, you know what? There's a huge demarcation line drawn between 35 and 36. We've gone from Antiochus in 170 BC, and now in the vision it's jumped forward all the way, leaving Antiochus behind to the far future Antichrist. Um, and guys that hold this view, a lot of them I have a lot of respect for. Uh, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger holds this view, Dr. D.R. Davis, Dr. E.J. Young. There's multiple ones that hold this view, and they're Reformed men, and I highly respect them. But I think that view is missing a, a piece of the context. Now, among this idea of the Antichrist, you have to recognize that when you get into the understanding of the Antichrist and the context of it in these verses, you're going to have multiple views of the Antichrist. Who is this future Antichrist? Well, some convey that it's Herod the Great. Some say it's an apostate Jew. Some say it's the Pope of Rome. Some say it's Nero. Some convey a future unknown figure as the Antichrist. And that would be the idea of Davis and Young and Riddlebarger as this still is an unknown figure. 
So you have a lot of diverging views on the passage itself and the information that comes out of the passage about Antichrist. There's a lot of diverging views. It can get really confusing. My hope is that I don't confuse you more. I hope I shed some light on the context of these passages. And I want to do that by giving you the sense that in these passages, I think there is a mixture of two large, important ideas. There is a near future consideration in verse 36 to 45, and there is a far future consideration as well. Both are true. And I think we're going to see that in the context. There's a previous unveiling of prophecy concerning near future matters that we've already talked about. Chapter 11 has given us historical matters from Cyrus the Great to Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which is 539 B.C. to 160 B.C. We've been discussing some type of near future historical evidence that Daniel is getting that as prophecy. To us, it's history. But God is saying to Daniel, True enough, Cyrus ends the exile, the people get to go back, they get to rebuild the temple, there's a lot of struggle in that. Ezra, Nehemiah, there's a lot of struggle in that, rebuilding a temple, but they get there. But this prophecy is saying, even though they get there, the troubles are not over. The difficulties are not over because there's future antichrists who are coming. These figures down the line, and we've discussed them. And these visions that we've seen already give us four kingdoms, right? We've already talked about Babylon, Persia, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those have been the kingdoms in the previous visions in 7 and 8. When we've gotten to 10 and 11, and especially 11, there's been an unfolding of these future kingdoms and the context of those kingdoms and the leaders who will come against the people of God. And we've said the kingdom of the north, the Seleucids, that's the old Assyrian kingdom. Present, more present in the time of Rome of Syria, but that's the old Assyrian kingdom. That is the kingdom of the north, the Seleucids. When we talked about the Seleucids versus the Ptolemies. The kingdom of the south is Egypt and the Ptolemies. And the people of God are squished in between these two kingdoms. And whenever they fight, the people of God are in between that fighting and that warring. We've already seen in previous verses this unfolding near future historical idea. So I think that means it's unlikely that we're dealing here in verse 36 to 45 with a complete jump from something that has no near future context all the way to the far future Antichrist that's mentioned in the passage that Scott read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, I think it does have a context to that passage. But I don't think that's the only context. I think it is likely that this is a picture of the upcoming upcoming Roman Empire because that's the fourth kingdom. We've already dealt with three. Remember, this vision that Daniel, the vision that's been unfolding has had four kingdoms in it. Rome has already previously been mentioned on two different occasions. 
We've dealt with three of the kingdoms, and now in this vision we have to go somewhere, and I think it's logical from the text that it goes to the fourth kingdom, which is Rome. This is that Roman Empire, and it's incremental, after the time of Antiochus especially, it's incremental and final crushing of the Jewish state up to 70 A.D. As well as we see here a prefiguring of what is near future Antichrist and a prefiguring of what is far future the Antichrist. This is the one who comes sometime after the ascension of Christ and leads up to Christ's one final return. Therefore, verse 36 begins a section that conveys revelation regarding a new future, excuse me, a near future type of Antichrist and the far future Antichrist. It's a both and. Near future, far future, both of these are connected. You say, well, how can that be? How can you get dual ideas out of this? Well, we've already seen it throughout this text, and it's actually throughout the whole of Scripture, and I hope to just briefly show you that. Number one this morning, main point. Recognize that prophecy often has a near future context with a far future realization. Recognize that prophecy, biblical prophecy, often has a near future context with a far future realization. One writer says, the New Testament has an underlying tension between the already and the not yet. Tension between the already and the not yet is implicit in the teachings of Jesus. For Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is both present and future, and that eternal life is both a present possession and a future hope. We see that tension of what is near and far, what is already and not yet. We see it in the teachings of Christ. This is a tension that we have to live with. What is near future and what is far future? Some of you all remember years ago that Joey explained this from the old Sesame Street. Y'all, y'all, some of you all remember that? You've seen the old Sesame Street thing? Near, far. Near, far. Right? Okay. Somebody gets it. Well, that's the sense that we have here. We have that near and we have that far. We have the already and the not yet. We see this in the New Testament. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. The Hebrews writer says, you know what? The already has come and that Jesus, at the time of the writing of Hebrews, Jesus already came. And he did this work specifically to once bear the sins of the many. And he's coming again. The already and the not yet. But now think about this for a second. There was a time when the Hebrews writer couldn't have written it that way. There was a time when Jesus was being prophesied as the one who was going to be the sin bearer. It was still that which was near future, and I think we've already seen that in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 talks about the Son of Man coming. 
There's a sense in which the already and the not yet, was that was being put out there in Daniel 7. And Jesus was going to be near future and far future. To the people of Israel, they were still looking for the Messiah in Daniel's day. The Messiah had not come. And yet, not only are they looking for a Messiah, but they're also looking not just for a sin bearer, but they're looking for someone to reconcile all things to himself. So we have that twofold context from New Testament to Old Testament, that which is near future and that which is far future. And at, at times, when prophecy is partially fulfilled, it becomes the already and the not yet. Christ has already come the first time, but he hasn't come the second and final time, the already and the not yet. Yet there was a time when the already and the not yet was not true yet of Christ, right? Okay. We even have to see the context of something far future that is building here 36 to 45 all the way into Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. There's a recognition in this text of the far future second coming of Christ. Look at Daniel chapter 12 real quick. Now at that, at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred. Since there was a nation until that time, and at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Written in the book. It's, this is the language of Revelation. This is the language of the idea of the Lamb's book of life. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. This is something far future and final. And it's mentioned right here in Daniel, and it's worked out, the Olivet Discourse, which we'll deal some time with that, and then further worked out in the context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the whole book of Revelation. So we have to see there's a far future sense to these passages. 11, 36, all the way into the first section of 12, there's something near future and there's something far future. So, number two, main point number two. Recognize that Antichrist typology is an unfolding realization in the whole of Scripture. We're going to see that there is an Antichrist that's mentioned here in verses 36 through 45. But that Antichrist is near future and far future. And we have to recognize that this type of Antichrist typology is nothing new in the Old Testament or in the Scriptures. Now, I'm not, right now I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. I just want you to get your head kind of working through this a little bit. Even from the very start of the scriptures, this is one of the, the main subplots of scripture is this type of Christ, Antichrist, two-seed typology. Think about it. In Genesis three fourteen, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, talking about the way you've tempted Adam and Eve, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than any beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. 
In our understanding of covenant theology, the seed is so important in its proper context. We see the first ideas of, uh, of salvation and the gospel put forward in the coming seed. But there's also the seed of the serpent, Satan himself, those who are being spawned off of his seed. They are antichrists. And the scripture unfolds them that way. We see this promised seed of the woman is Christ and the promised seed of the serpent or Satan is antichrist. So this is the first main subplot of the idea of Christ versus antichrist. The scripture has this identification in it from the very first book of the Bible. Antichrists are there. That's how John can say many have already come. 1 John 2.18 Many have already come. How long have they already come? All the way back since the garden. It carries through, though, that this subplot in redemptive history unfolds throughout the rest of Scripture as well. It's not just in the identification of the seed in Genesis 3.15. But think about Cain murdering Abel. Was Cain not being a type of antichrist in murdering Abel? Because how is the promised seed going to come? When he murdered Abel, he murdered Abel to say, I will take control my way. I'm in charge. God, you won't accept what I have to offer you? Well, you know what? I'll kill the one who offered you what you wanted. That's antichrist. That's a type. But thankfully, Seth is born, right? We see that not only in Genesis 4, but we see it in Luke chapter 3, the importance of the birth of Seth and the line of the Messiah, the seed, the seed. Other times, it's not just um, the actual descendancy idea of the seed, but it's the protective order of the seed. One writer says, in the account of the rebellion of Korah, Numbers 16, 1 through 50, members of the priestly tribe of Levi, as well as 250 men drawn from among the leaders of Israel, directly challenged Moses' authority as the covenant mediator of Israel. And what do they do? They try to take Moses out. And when they try to take Moses out, what is God's response? He opens a hole and swallows them up. Why? Because he says, no, 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 I'll have my covenant mediator. And right now, in this particular covenant, Moses is the representative. He's the type of Christ as my covenant mediator, and you will not take him out. He's giving an identification that he will deal with any antichrist. We can see these figures, these antichrist figures in Nimrod. Pharaoh, is he not a type of antichrist? When we get to the book of Daniel, have we not seen types of Antichrist? Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And I think we'll now need to see there is a near future context continuing here in these verses for Antichrist and a far future context. Every one of these Antichrists wants to be in control of all mankind and dominate creation. Look back. What, what was leading the people about the Tower of Babel? There was an Antichrist movement going on. 
even the Nephilim themselves. Think. think. These, these, these people were ushering in the wickedness against God Himself. They want to be in control of all mankind and dominate creation. They want to say, I have dominion the way I want to have dominion, not the way that you gave us dominion, God. This is what the Antichrist does. Well, we come to verses 36 to 45. Number three, recognize that Daniel has seen a glimpse of the near future and the far future Antichrists. Many antichrists is what John says. Many. And they have come. And we've already explored in Daniel several of them in type. And I gave you just a little, little nidbit of a cracker of the idea of other types already explored. Now, Lord willing, we can say more of that at a later time because it's an interesting study. When we come here, we have to recognize we've already seen a near-future type of Antichrist in verses 21 through 35, and that was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He is, he, to Daniel, he's coming up 538 B.C. all the way to 170 B.C. Here's Antiochus Epiphanes. He's coming up. He's in the line. All right? He's already in line. We've already discussed him. His actions are revealed here in prophetic literature. And we know through history he fulfilled the prophecy. He had the actions and the mind of an antichrist. And yet he's not the final antichrist. So in verses 36 through 45, why would there not be near future and far future? I think we have to see under this number three. We've seen a previous text. Now we have to see it in this text that there is a near future and a far future, and the near future is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire fulfills the near future context of this prophetic vision. What you're seeing unfold in 36 to 45 is the Roman Empire. I think we have to turn back just a little bit and recognize Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 4 is Babylon. Verse 5 is Medo-Persia. Verse 6 is Greece. Verse 7 is Rome. Now, remember, you may not remember all this. If you want to go back and listen to those messages, I can't rehash it all because I'll never get through all this. But remember, we've already discussed the context. We made a case for these four kingdoms already, and the text often proves it because the names of these kingdoms and their leaders are brought up. And we've also noted previously the context is not always that it's just one single individual. There's a lot of times Cyrus was representative of all of those kings of Persia, but that Antichrist mindset was going to come through the whole of their leading. Nebuchadnezzar 
Even his ancestors followed through with antichrist mindsets. When you get to verse 7 and 8, this is the dreadful, terrifying fourth beast. The large iron teeth. He says, while I was, verse 8, while I was contemplating the horns, the horns of this beast, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth and uttering great boasts. Turn over to verses 23 in Daniel chapter 7. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom. Whatever all that horns and eyes and terrifying stuff and all that stuff to get your attention... Whatever all that is, come back over here and and the scripture doesn't leave us without an understanding that this fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Well, look at verse 36. In Daniel chapter 11, and what does it say about this? Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Instead, he will honor a God of fortresses. It goes on in verse 39 and says he will take action against the strongest of fortresses. It goes on in these later verses to talk about how he will basically rule the whole. I mean, you see, whoever this king is that's being spoken of in 36, he's just going to march through and take it all over. Well, I think this king is the king or the kingdom of the Roman Empire, because this is exactly the connection to the fourth beast. Think about how Rome formed and the context of its forming. Yes, it was a republic. Yes, they had a senate. But you often had two or three men always vying for leadership in Rome. The Roman Empire would not split up, but it would split up in the context of its leaders. The number 10 is not an exact number. It's a symbolic number to give the context of there will be many leaders of this kingdom who rule in this way. Since Rome is this terrifying fourth beast... Rome is the one who seeks to crush everyone in its path. Think about what happened to Antiochus IV at the end. What did I tell you? Talking about the ships of Katim, the ships of the coastland, that was Rome. They came in and they put a stop to Antiochus doing what? Going any further west. One of their generals drew a circle around him said, Answer now. Are you going to do what we tell you to do or not? And Antiochus goes, Okay. Because he knew he'd get crushed. They were already on the push. 
He backs away. He goes into frustration over the Jews. But Rome is still pushing. Rome is still pushing. One writer says, This monster, speaking of Rome, rampages, conquers, crushes, and stamps. It is totally different from anything which has gone before. Nothing had been seen like Rome. Nothing. Nothing. He goes on and he says, This is the great Roman Empire. We have the same kingdoms as before and in the same order. The last of them is spiteful Rome. Speaking of all of what we've seen from Daniel 11 all the way to the end. There is a near future context and it is the Roman Empire being further revealed. Now some people will say, well, yeah, but it says king. It's a singular. Well, that's really not that troublesome. Um, As one writer says, we must now discover what the king, the angel here designates. First of all, I apply it entirely to the Roman Empire. He says, by the word king, I do not think a single person indicated, but an empire, whatever it be, its government, whether by senate or consuls or by proconsuls. He said, it shouldn't be odd to us that this is the language. Have we not seen in previous scriptures where the singular was used for the whole? We've already seen that the Medo-Persian Empire was spoken of as a singular in one point to speak of the Cyruses. We've already seen the name of Cyrus used as a singular when it was pointing to a whole of its ancestry and kingdom. Just because in this text, remember, it's prophetic, it's apocalyptic in its context, it's Jewish prophetic literature, they're saying there's something coming that is great and it will smash all. And it doesn't have to just be one singular person and the reason why is because one singular person is not living 150, 200, 300 years. They're recognizing the whole of this kingdom. It fits the bill. What does Rome do? It does as it pleases. It exalts itself in a way that no other king has exalted itself before. Rome crushes everyone who is in its way. The Macedonian Wars, the Punic Wars, the Mithridatian Wars, even to the point by 63 B.C., the Caesars elected Pontifex Maximus, and there's a seizure, a seizure of Jerusalem by Pompey. Pompey and Crassus, they come in long before the Caesars, and they are just, I mean, dominating the East. You want to read more about that? You can read uh, Michael Grant's book on the Roman Empire. Uh, you can read uh, The Rubicon by Tom Holland. You can take some time to read uh, Edward Gibbons on the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. You'll see Crassus and Pompey there before the time of Christ. This is setting up this Roman Empire and recognizing, Daniel, there's still trouble ahead for the people of God. Don't be caught off guard. 
You'll get past Antiochus IV. He's going to be miserable to deal with. But the people of God are still going to have to deal with this Roman Empire. They're going to come through and they're going to march. And you're going to be in between everything that they're doing. You're going to be caught in the middle of it. Even so much so that in 63 B.C., Pompey takes a complete seizure of Jerusalem. Wait, they got to go back to Jerusalem, right? They got to rebuild the temple, right? Everything's supposed to be fine, right? Daniel's vision is telling them, don't get complacent. It kind of reminds us of some thoughts in Thessalonians, right? Be sober. 1 Thessalonians, the end of that letter. 2 Thessalonians, what was read to us. Be sober. Now Daniel's not ready. Personally, Daniel's not ready to even understand the things that we would understand and that Paul understood, right? He's not ready for that. So this is just glimpses and pictures And it lines up just perfectly. One kingdom after the other. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and now there's Rome. And in the middle, right in between Greece and Rome, is chapter 8, that little horn, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who's going to exemplify what it means to be Antichrist. He will usurp everything in the temple worship, and he will put up a worship of himself and Zeus right there in there. And then he's saying, it's not over yet. Once Antiochus is off, Rome is coming. Be sober, people of God. Antichrists are coming. They are there. Be sober. After 63 B.C., Rome had already come to a place. I mean, think about what verse 36 is saying. They will speak, magnify themselves above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. What was Rome doing already by 63 B.C. and what they would continue to do? They were mandating what gods could be worshipped and how they could be worshipped. And we, we've had talks over the years around here about the regulative principle. The scripture regulates worship and tells Christians how to worship. The Roman Empire, with its different leaders over a period of time, continued to say, we'll tell you the gods you can worship, and we will also tell you how you will worship them. They just fit the bill. They fit the bill. If you want to read more lengthy thought on the context of, of Rome and all of this, go, go read John Calvin. Go read his commentary on the book of Daniel. It's in uh, volume 13 that I have. Um, it's chapters 7 through 12, I think. And start in, in these verses and start reading how he unfolds this. And if you've done any reading in Roman history, you'll go, Ugh, this makes sense. It's not that crazy to see the connection. Rome had to be the next step right here in 36 to 45.
I've got tons of quotes, but I don't have time for all that. We have to see how Rome in and of itself has to fit this context because in verse 40 it starts to come back to the idea of the king of the south and the king of the north. What is one thing that Rome kept doing in its time? It kept battling with the east and trying to take over Egypt. There was one skirmish after another. Once again, if you go and look at the progressive nature of Rome's empire and how it takes over, it's like nothing the world has ever seen. And it makes sense that they would fit the bill. They even come in and take over the beautiful land. They just rule and reign the beautiful land. They they give the Jews a little bit of a, a leash and let the Jews kind of do their thing, but every time the Jews want to get a little persnickety, the Romans say, ah, bam, I'm going to smash you, little fly. And they do that multiple times until the final time of AD 70. They say, you know what, we've had it. We're tired of you Jews. We're going to show you. And they just come in, and I mean, they literally annihilate the place. Now, true enough, in the background of that, there's divisions among the Jews, and there were some Hellenistic Jews who helped the Romans come in and take over. Agreed enough. And there were some who stood against it. But I don't think that is what these verses are talking about. It's talking about the whole of the Roman Empire and how it progresses after Antiochus IV moving into its rule and reign and this final annihilation. And you say, yeah, but it doesn't mention the birth of Christ. Well, it doesn't mention it here, but we, we've noted early on that there's already been a promise made of the coming of the Son of Man. So to skip from the end of these verses talking about this near future Antichrist and then jumping to this end time where everybody is fine and wonderful is really not a problem because Daniel's already been given a vision of the Son of Man. He's tying all this together by this graciousness of God to give him this vision. He's showing very thoughtfully and carefully how Rome is a near future Antichrist and how it's one of many He's also showing that there will be others who come. So he rounds out 36 to 45 with a near future sense of the Roman Empire. And yet in 36 and 45, there's an allusion to a far future Antichrist. Just as Pharaoh, the sons of Korah, Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus IV, and the Roman Empire are types of Antichrist, the Scripture does speak of a final Antichrist. Scott read that passage to you this morning. I won't exposit or exegete it. We don't have time for that. But it's right there. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, there he is. He's mentioned. And here we have in this setting a recognition of the far future sense the Antichrist, the one and final Antichrist, when he comes, 
he will have rule and reign in a way that he is completely going to look as if he will take everything over. And yet he will be subjected under the feet of Christ. He will be crushed. And we see this movement to this far future context in 12, 1 through 3. The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred. I think this will be the allusion to the context of how the Olivet Discourse works out. Since there was a nation until that time and at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Well, I can't mean the first coming of Christ because at the first coming of Christ not everyone is rescued fully and finally. There is an actual work that is done when Christ first comes. He fulfills his, sin, his office as the sin bearer. He is coronated in his reign as in, as, at his ascension. But there is still sin abounding on the earth after he ascends. Now it's not abounding in the same way that it always has because the gospel is going forward. Through and in the kingdom, which is the church. And yet at the same time, we have to recognize there's going to come a day when he returns for that second and final time and he puts the kibosh on Antichrist. Whoever they were in the past, Antichrist, they will be condemned to Hades. Even here in Daniel's prophecy, it says, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. They're not written in the Lamb's book of life. All those antichrists, they are finally condemned. Antiochus IV Epiphanes, for all he wanted for people to worship him and to worship Zeus, he will meet his full and final end at the second coming of Christ. Now you and I know that it's over for him. but it's saying everyone in this line of Antichrist, whoever they are. You say, well, our confession says the Pope is the Antichrist. Well, how could he not be Antichrist? Has he not usurped Christ himself by saying he is the one and only vicar of Christ? As saying that he is the one who interprets all of Scripture? Is he that full and final? I don't know. But you know what? He could still fit the bill. I mean, it's amazing when he travels places, the millions of people that gather, and they, all they want to do is kiss his hand. Hmm. It's interesting. I don't know. All of these antichrists, line them up, up until that final one, and when he comes, and it looks like he is going to just rise up and have all that he wants. The sun will return, and when he returns, it will literally put the kibosh on any of that. It'll be over. It will be a defeat like we've never known or seen. We thought our army going into Kuwait and getting the Iraqis out of Kuwait was just a complete annihilation. That's not even close to what Christ will do.
There's a lot of purpose in this. You know what God's warning his people against? Their sin and its consequences. Why are the people of Israel, why are they continuing to be in this place? What has been the history of the people of God in the nation of Israel? God gave them his law. God gave them his covenant promise. God has kept them. He's protected them. And what have they done? Worshipped idols. False gods. Intermarried, bringing in the worshipping of idols. And in this vision, he's saying, you know what? Watch the people of Israel. They will not faithfully do what I've asked them to do. And Antichrist rise up on top of them, some of them from among them, and they are being warned of the consequences of their own sin. This is what the writers of the New Testament do for believers. They warn us. Stay clear. Watch out. Be sober-minded about your own sin. Antichrists are all around. They want to take you in. Satan, he's roaming, waiting to devour you. Our sin has great consequences. It's like the person who's swept in to that scam for something they want to be true. If you'll send me your information, I'll send you back a million dollars in your account. <gasps> yeah! We're easily pulled in. And Daniel's being given these visions to tell the people of God, don't be sucked in. Don't be sucked in. Paul and, and the writers of the New Testament are doing the same thing for us. Don't be sucked in. But lastly, these visions are God's promises to care, care for and comfort his people in the provision of salvation. If these successive antichrists are still coming for the nation of Israel, they're already back in the land. They're going to be able to rebuild the temple. There's going to be a lot of struggle, but they'll get there. But if these antichrists are still coming, what hope do they have? Well, the first hope they have is in the coming Messiah because he will come and he will live a perfect life and die a sinner's death and he'll be raised from the dead on the third day and he will ascend to be with the Father. And when Rome destroys the temple in A.D. 70 and destroys Jerusalem, what hope do they have? Now they can say, look back. Look back to who Christ is. He is the scapegoat. He's the one. Everything's been put on to Him. No longer needing the temple. No longer needing temple worship. Everything is about Christ. What's that say for us as Christians? Is everything smooth and easy after Christ comes? After the temple is completely destroyed? Has all of Christianity just, it's just been wonderful? 
We've had no problems since the first coming of Christ. Well, no. This is a warning to us. But John and Paul give us these further warnings. They're still antichrists. They're still there. And you know what? There's one coming is like no other. Nothing you've ever seen. But don't worry. Don't get sucked in, but don't worry. It will all be handled by the Christ. No one will thwart him. No one will stop him. If you are in his hand, no one can snatch you out. You see, these passages have warning of sin and consequence of sin, but they also have comfort. They have comfort for us to look at everything around us on a really, really large scale. It's one thing to look at things in a personal scale and go, oh, my sins are forgiven, thank you. That's one thing. But to look around me and see everything that's going on and go, when is this going to end? Who ever thought in America, this country, we would have to have discussions about whether or not a man who calls himself a woman should be playing sports with other women? Nobody! It doesn't make sense! And you look around at this world and you go, when's it going to end? How do we get through all this garbage? On a grand scale, these passages are for us. God has all of this in control and in His hands. He orchestrated Babylon and Persia. Antiochus Epiphanes, who thought he was somebody, but he was a little ant. And he orchestrated the whole of the Roman Empire, which nobody could have imagined. And it rolled and steamed through the known world. He's orchestrated China. Whatever they're going to do, China. Whatever. God has it in His hand. The end is in His hand. Believe. But it's also a further comfort that we need to go live like God would have us to live, not fearing what they will do to us. They will not like you if you live Christ before them. But don't fear it. Don't fear it. He's got it. He's got it. It's all under His sovereignty, His plan. It's already worked out. But we are to be responsible for our living to His glory. I pray that you find comfort in these things. And that for what of it I could explain to you, that it gives you an identification of how God himself is sovereign over absolutely everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you grant us grace and mercy.
to trust in you. To trust in you that your law is good for us and that we are to strive against sin and to live according to your law. For our good and your glory, we trust in you that you have all of this rampant chaos and craziness under control. Some of us in the room, Lord, have seen other craziness, but some have only seen what is of this late craziness. And it is very discouraging. Lord, will you give us hearts to trust in you, minds to trust in you, that we will walk before you, seeking to please you and glorify you alone, no matter what the world thinks of us. Give us comfort and peace when trial and tribulation come. And yet give us an understanding that there is already a reigning king who has a purpose in all of the trial and the tribulation. And one day, he will fully and finally stamp out all antichrists, the antichrist, and this world of sin will be changed and rolled up like a garment. May we trust in you, O Lord, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Amen.